The issues of health, education and welfare can often feel intangible and immovable. Despite feeling like we are slipping backwards on these issues, we often look to the government expecting them to drive change. Yet, in our focus on government as an omnipotent force, we might overlook the organic source of change at the grassroots. Charities, NGOs and community organisations often serve as a safety net for the most vulnerable among us. However, they struggle due to insufficient funding, resources and the means to measure their impact. Social Investment is an initiative that aims to promote and resource the grassroots programmes that are working. Joining me to talk more about this is former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Sir Bill English. Today, his organisation Impact Lab helps charities and NGOs better measure the impact they have. You might notice though that the audio quality of this episode isn't up to our usual standard. Unfortunately, we did have some issues with the recording and have had to do our best with a backup. So please bear with us. We promise it's a conversation well worth listening to. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Su, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to the podcast, Sir Bill English. Thank you so much for coming and spending your time with us this afternoon. It's nice to be here. (laughs) Very good. So in my research, looking up stuff about you and your past, uh, I made the realisation that actually you became an MP in 1990, which was actually several years before I was even I felt like it was really important to talk to you about your background and your history, the work that you've done, because I think it's important to have that sort of transmission, like that transfer of knowledge from you to me, because I've had a very recent sort of beginnings in my own sort of political career. And when you were in politics, I was actually like completely not politically conscious at all. So I I really had to do some digging to be like understand a little bit more about you. And hopefully it's just enough for me to be able to ask some more questions about you because I'm really interested to hear your insights because there's all this progress and change that's happened over decades long. And I think, um, you know, as young people, we tend to want to be progressive and make changes, but we kind of almost act as if the world has been around for about the last five years and not looking at what's happened in the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to understand how we've gotten to be here. And I'm really interested to hear some insights from you because you've got this um, legacy around social investment. That's probably one of the things that you're remembered for the most. And the other thing that you're remembered for the most is being the patron saint of spaghetti and pineapple and pizza. (laughs) (laughs) And never know what you're going to do in public life for that, isn't it? So I want to know also, when you're reminiscing about the good old times, do you think... 
Friday night, not got a lot to do. Just going to have a, a can of beer and make myself a spaghetti and pineapple pizza. Is that, is that what you still do from time to time? I need to make sure I have a meal ready for you. My wife got home from the medical practice. It works hard. <laughs> it's my time to see her time to be supportive. Because that was a very iconic thing that you've done. And what were you thinking at the time of being like, yeah, I'm going to share this with the world? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was in, people forget how quickly social media developed. So that was actually six, seven years ago. And Facebook was the big thing. And using Facebook, politically was relatively new. All I can recall the first part of the 2017 campaign, we read, the team realised, despite the fact that I've been a senior politician for a while, I wasn't that well known to the public. <laughs> I didn't know much about it. And between then and my kids, they put together a video. And I still remember being amazed. They got over a million views on Facebook. It was a day in the life of thing and a bit of family. At the time, we were waving this wand. As if you're not a trained magician and you pick up the wand, you don't quite know what it's going to do. So the pizza episode was really just about a dirty second event, which was... And now it's on par with everything else that happened over 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this still comes up occasionally. Yeah, I'm bringing it up now. So I saw, so you posted it saying, cooked dinner for the family last night. Like if you agree with tinned spaghetti on pizza. Do you know how many people liked and agreed with you? I have no idea. About 10,000. <laughs> and I think one of your comments on that was, I drained off some of the liquid, but not quite enough since pizza was a bit soggy in the middle. Goes well with pineapple. Have you learned from that lesson? What I learned was that it's about 50-50 over this question. 50-50? What do you mean 50-50 was? Well, some people think it's a, a disgraceful idea. And the other 50% remember it's what they number. <laughs> as long as you remember to drain off the juice, right? Yes, then, then you're all right. Of those down, a regular <laughs> cock. How do you think that publicity stuff, some might call it, affected international relations with Italy? <laughs> We had this strange spectacle of a guy on one of the nighttime comedy programs in the US decided to have a real crack at it. And the mistake I made actually wasn't the pizza. The mistake I made was that the comedian John, I can't remember his name. John Oliver? John Oliver. And I happened to make the remark that I didn't think he was very funny, which is something you do not say about star comedians. Then he really went off his rocket about how strange and weird it was. But it's just a... Another aspect of public life, as you would have found yourself <laughs> from your own political efforts and congratulations on stepping out into that arena. Thank you. Got an exercise of democratic rights. As you're exercising it as a candidate is a remarkably exhausting, energising, scintillating experience. But you need to be satisfied yourself with what you did in public life because if you judged your own efforts purely by what is left in the public mind. For 95% of politicians, that's nothing. Like, they can't. No one really remembers. And the thing they remember is your pizza and your policy. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that don't judge yourself according to, don't judge your efforts in the same way that the media or the... Or the number of likes and shares and all that, yeah. Yeah. 
The reason why I bring up Italy is because I saw that actually the Italian embassy in Wellington did a reply and they made a pavlova and just got whipped cream and salami on it. That's what I was like. I didn't remember that. That's what great. These things grab people's attention. Yeah. In ways you just don't expect. So I know it's, it might be hard for to believe, but it was not a cynical publicity stuff. It was simply a bit of a, a snap decision over a bit of humanising Facebook. I wish all the other things that we put on Facebook had taken off in the same way. That's a very endearing, oh, good old Uncle Bill kind of thing. That's that. Well, I hope so. I want to ask a little bit more about uh, the beginnings of your political career. Like, what led you to run for run as a candidate yourself? I was brought up in a reasonably political household. My mother was uh, what you might, what I now would call a, an activist. She was a campaigner alongside being mother of 12. All sorts of issues ranging from what your local school bus took through to National Education Policy. My local MP was a chap called Brian Torbords, who was Deputy Prime Minister under Ron Longdoon and Trade Minister for a long time. And a pretty pivotal figure in the 60s and 70s because that's when New Zealand, with its mainly agricultural economy, was suffering the effects of Britain joining the European community. And that affected New Zealand. So in a farming household at the bottom of the world, this kind of geopolitics was pretty live because it had direct impact on your incomes. Uh, so I was always interested. I spent some time not farming, but also some time as a treasury analyst working with the 1987 government, Roger Douglas. When you went to university, you did a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature. Is that right? Slightly copy. Yeah, I did. I've got an honours degree in English Literature. Oh, yes. a degree in accounting. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, I feel like these days you can't really get questions. <laughs> well, like a Bachelor of English Literature, because they're so different these days. And if you've got a university, you have to go and do a degree, like a professional degree to get a job. And getting an English Literature degree they, they, these days is so hard to find a job. It's, it's a bit of a shame because actually I'd spent a year doing just um, specialising in English, the fourth year in English honours at Victoria University, and a very eclectic class, which included my good friend John Campbell and Elizabeth Knox, who turned out to be one of our more significant novelists. And I have to say in that year I learned more about kind of analysis of power and use of language and tools of persuasion from some brilliant lecturers covering everything from uh, postmodern theory on the one hand and becoming an expert on Paradise Lost by John Milton on the other. These are the thinking skills and knowledge in historical context, and I actually found those very useful skills, not just in the jobs that I got straight after that, but in politics as well. I feel like we've devalued these sort of humanities heavy subjects as well. That's what I feel like in my mind, um, for based on, I don't know, watching TV and watching movies and things, that university is supposed to be the space where there's a lot of big ideas and debate about different views and free speech. And, uh, but now I feel like universities are almost like factory farming people for the workforce. So like when I go to university, when I went to university in medical school, it was all just about like how to basically do the job. There was not much about critical thinking about 
a bigger picture of what does our, it is a little bit, right, a little bit about public health and epidemiology and things like that, but there's, there wasn't really anything to try and get us to challenge each other's ideas about talking about where can we take health in the future. And obviously there was, but it was more, felt more like it was feeding us information rather than getting us to think for ourselves. I feel like that could be said for a lot of other degrees as well. There's a certain amount of expectation on the public that if you've got a professional degree, you've learned a set of skills. And I think for a couple of points about the universities, one is that they've now got this fairly ideological overlay, just certain types of things, the right things to think. And I think that's a bit less of a problem in New Zealand, but it's certainly a problem in Australia, in the US, in the UK. Uh, and I think what some of our professionals are getting in those university courses is one view. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't mind hearing views that are completely challenging and hard to deal with, but one view right through is probably not a good thing. On the other hand, let's not overrate the influence of of our education system on how people think. I mean, it can enhance how people think. It can certainly make a difference for those who need the opportunity of a good education. But I've always been impressed with the public's kind of relative common sense and scepticism. Whatever our institutions are doing, we should pay attention to. But they don't determine. You might have gone through that university course for a number of years, but you're quite capable of exercising your crit- critical thinking now as a intelligent human being. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. And, and being capable of understanding, I think, that if you, as you might have found when you're in politics, if you go door knocking in any given street in New Zealand, you'd be amazed at the variety of stories the variety of stories, of opinions, of ways of expressing it that you'll find in any given street. It's not uniformity, and that's great. Yeah, that's definitely what I would. That's what I found in the campaign, whether it's a debate or doing a farmers market stall. That there's a way more variety of way that people think than what I guess is produced by the current political parties or I guess political parties of any time period, really. Like, I feel like there's been a simplification or, like, a coarse categorization of people into certain boxes, and this is the box that you're in, you think yeah. this way, therefore you must think all these other things as well. Yeah, or you look like this. Exactly. Therefore you must think this way. Or you look like this, therefore you used to distant. This is why we're, I think, so fortunate to be in a country where people can defy those stereotypes. That's pretty profound insight that you had. The labels of politics and of media tell you some things, some of the time about some people, but mostly they won't. I want to bring it back a little bit to your, the early part of your political career. In my Googling, you had three other mates who were also new national MPs, and you were labelled as the Brat Pack, the Gang of Four, the Young Turks, what does this mean and why were you given these labels? Well, I don't I think they weren't meant to be complimentary. That's <laughs> for uh, sure. We all entered politics at a pretty turbulent time. We're all A young. So Roger Sarah's a bit older than me, but Tony Rowland and Dick Smith were both younger than me. I was only 28. And Mick was about 18. Um, no, actually, I think he was 25. Was like, Gosh, 25. But he'd been on the on the Rangi Ora Council at the age of 18. And you need to remember the New Zealand economy had just been, was really still in the middle of, a bit past the middle of a massive, significant economic restructuring, the most significant in our lifetime. 
Yeah, like the the move to free market economics. Yeah, the whole the whole shit. Fraudonomics. Yeah. And we were all provincial MPs where the impact of it was greater, significantly greater than it was in Wellington. And actually more than in Auckland. There'd been a stock market crash in nineteen eighty seven. So every now and again I have to remind people about this because we don't have this sense today of this all these impending problems and polycrisis. Actually, just keep it in perspective. We're not post-Second World War. We're not going through the sort of 84 to 93 economic restructuring. There's a lot more tools now dealing with uncertainty and the downside effects of the market. But at that time, it was pretty, actually, reasonably grim. And there was this very significant changes going on in government. We were young, very young, thrown into the middle of all this. Ron Mulgoon was still on time. Uh, when we arrived there, uh, and been a dominating figure, to clearly faded physically, but not mentally, that's for sure. And uh, there was a time of real turmoil, protests. What were people protesting against? Oh, at the time, just for example, uh, my first job in Parliament was as Chair of the Social Services Select Committee. And the opposition leaders, opposition members on were Helen Clark and Michael Cullen, probably heard of them, uh, who just come out of government. And the Labour Party was in turmoil because of the effect, internal effects of Roger Knox. And that was when the birth of what went through to Jim Anderson found the new Labour Party and all that was going on. And as part of the getting the government spending under control or significant cuts in benefits and cuts in quite a lot of things in the 91 and 92 budgets, and that got people pretty worked up. There was a lot of more protest action around that time. And there was still, you know, you remember the 1981 Springbok tour, which was deeply divisive in the country. It wasn't that far back in history. It was still quite a fresh memory for a lot of people. The point of all that being, we, as impressionable young politicians, it was both an exciting but a tough time in the 90s election. Having had a landslide in 1990, we won by a recount two weeks after election. Really? 14 votes in the Omaru seat. The result of all that was the move to MNP. So we went through that whole period. Why are you the Brat Pack? Why are you the gang of four? What does it mean, young Turks? What does it mean? Well, <laughs> we didn't think it meant anything. Really. Uh, we just were naturally a peer group. Uh-huh. Because we were youngish and alone, there was a lot of people came in and they were all the time. Was there some like frivolous behaviour? Or... No, I mean, I think we were probably a bit serious. But then it was pretty serious times. We enjoyed each other's company. We started going on holidays in the summer, which we're still doing. Over the years, I think we've disagreed about most things, whether it's economic issues or social issues or conscience issues or ways of doing politics. Uh, but we've been able to maintain a friendship. That's been it's been a very special thing. So I want to bring it back to your legacy of social investment, because I feel like the words social investment, it sounds like a very lefty liberal idea of like you know, wanting to look after people and make things better. And that that's the, the I think that's the vibe that you get from those words. But obviously left national government and at least there's a deputy prime minister and you know, various different ministerial portfolios as well as having been a prime minister for some time. 
what does social investment mean to you? Like, could you explain what it really means? Well, it has become a bit like well-being. It's the words, I think it's more useful than well-being. What words that, to which people attach all sorts of expectations and aspirations. For me, it's a very practical issue. And it goes right back to some of those earlier experiences, actually, as a politician. Um, and, and as a person living in small rural areas, and that is, first of all, a fundamental belief in people's capacity to know what they need to do to improve their lives and what they can do. So it's a kind of rangatira concept, or out of um, my Catholic tradition called personalism. That is integrity of the person, which is not just about who they are, but their capabilities. And we're a very statist country, and we regard the state as a kind, supportive entity generally. And actually, I don't agree with that. I think often it's underestimating people. So that's one. And then the second thing about it really is just using the tools that are available now to understand, what could it this way, understand the customer, which people where are having what experiences. And I don't mean statistical averages. And if you could know that, you should then act on it. If people in this community have this particular need, there's a capacity to know that and act on it, and it's different in another community, there's a capacity to know that and act on it. Unfortunately, our system's not designed that way. It's designed on universalism. That is, it was set up to provide commodity services to most people so that everyone got education, everyone got health, everyone got income support. And that was a good thing, and it does that reasonably well. Not as well as it could. It works for about 85% of the public, of the population. And the work we've done shows that the other 15% uh, incur about 50% of all spend, which is actually what you'd expect. So 85% incur about half of all public spend, and the other 15% incur the other half. And the system's not designed for that. And so some of the um, revolving door problems that you see happening are the result of the same institutions making the same mistakes for 30 years, 40 years, and still struggling to understand why and struggling to understand the better solutions. So social investment is an approach that says, which is actually says universalism has reached its limit. It can't deal with complexity. And so we need a different set of tools alongside that system to really understand that those more complex families and communities. Do you mean we need to get throw out universalism or do you mean we need a better mix of universalism? We need a better mix. Testing. We need a better mix. And also we've learned you can't, those institutions can't change much. I mean, we're just like in your own one of health. Just been through a massive change and there may be some people somewhere who are going to claim benefits from it, but it's not obvious. In fact, I remember giving a speech in Canberra a few years ago, work of 30 senior public servants in Canberra, and I said to them, how many of you believe your institution could change significantly in the next five years? No one put their hand up out of several hundred people. Now, if you stood in front of any audience outside the public service, most of them would put their hand up because they'd say, we have to, not necessarily because they want to, and not because I don't think what they're doing right now is good, but that meeting the needs of their customers and the whatever's going on in the world, whether it's technology or climate change or whatever, they know in five years they're going to be different. Because public service knows that it doesn't have to be. 
I think one of my concerns about social investment, in fact, I, I agree that we need to make sure that the people who need the help the most get the most, tar- most, what's the word? Not targeted, but I guess the most, the help that is more tailored, I suppose, the more tailored yep. needs, to more tailored to their needs. And I guess my, the counter argument to social investment is who's the customer, right? Like when we talk about social investment, social investment is it the people who receive the help? Are they the ultimate customer or has social investment in some cases been used to justify more like reduced spending because the customer is ultimately the taxpayer? So who's the customer when it comes to social investment? Oh, this is the person with the need. I think that people in general would be a bit distressed to know how little the public service system knows about actual people with actual needs and how unexamined a lot of these challenges are. So let's just take a pretty simple one. Like the first, if you look at the, you know, the resource intensity required for kids who are really lagging behind, it's not one and a half times, it's probably three times what's required for average kids who can move along through the system, learning how to read and write. Now, if you ask anyone officially, they they would say that they're certainly not willing to change the system enough to provide the kind of resources that we need. At the bottom end, there's a bit of an upward slope. There's a bit more. There is more goes into at the bottom end. But there's nothing that would give reassurance that the system is actually providing those more disadvantaged, socioeconomic disadvantaged kids with the opportunity that we believe education can provide. And it's not like these are new issues. These have been around for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. The same discussions now as when I was a junior treasury official 35 years ago, which tells you that the institutions have become sclerotic. So even though they know this persistent failure, they're actually unable to change enough. So you either believe, you either think they don't believe those kids are capable because they've got this statistical definition of being of not much hope. They'll either believe those kids aren't capable, or they believe they are, they're just not wanting to change the institutions. Because those schools that service those kids, the system around them is the same as 30 years ago. So who else would tolerate 30 years of failure? You'd think at least you would have made some really significant, even if very challenging changes, to be able to get that to happen. So a concrete example, so a concrete positive example of this of change is the Fanawara approach, which I still remember the day it was launched with myself and uh, Tari Alatui. Uh, the Māori, one of the Māori Party co-leaders at the time. Yeah, it, yeah, that's right. And it was pretty, pretty edgy about whether this should happen because it's what it does is it says instead of trying to push all this money through the usual universal big state agencies and hope they collaborate which is only hope, hope they collaborate to deal with a challenged family and we still let's actually start a different sort of integrated institution outside of that mainstream that has the characteristics of um, self-direction, independence from the bureaucracy, flexibility and a really strong grip on the, a strong grip on the whānau needs. So that's what I mean about change instead of you know, if the mainstream organisations, institutions can't change to improve these persistent social disadvantages, then you need then you should try something else. 
Unfortunately, under the pre- to some of the risk we've done in the previous government, they retracted from those changes. They were conservative view that who provides it matters more than who gets it. And I've never understood that logic, that it's more important to have a, a national schooling system than it is to have kids who desperately need the current set of literacy to be able to become literate, or in the cases of chronic disease. We know an awful lot about our, our chronic disease, but our institutional arrangements make it incredibly difficult to do it. No, reforms have been very challenging in terms of the healthcare reforms. Like, I'll be honest and say, as a doctor working in the healthcare system, I haven't seen any real significant change in the way that I work. One of the things that I think a lot of us were hoping for was just a nationalised health record. If somebody from Ormanu comes up to Auckland on holiday, gets sick, we can look up their notes and we have it there in front of us, but we don't. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> so look, this is a, a good example of the kind of right diagnosis of the wrong solution. So the for the technology in health is driven to a large extent by large bureaucracy, now monopoly, total monopoly, the most centralised health system in the Western world now. Because not even the hospitals are run separately as they are in the NHS, they're all one big hospital management system basically. And big vendors. So your national health record, eventually you might get there. It's just that combination of people. There's not, well, that combination of institutions not going to produce it in a hurry. And it's certainly going to be incredibly expensive. Most of the solutions that are actually needed, I mean, that's one that's important for health professionals, uh, like localised technology that enables data to move around in a way that's relevant to your community and your family and how you live. Because someone might live, move from Oru to Auckland, but actually the, by far the majority of what's required is that the, the GP and the Plunkett nurse can see the same thing locally. And those solutions are pretty easy, actually. So you've chosen a highly centralised Solution when the problem that's been diagnosed are all localized, personalized issues, and in that sense, it's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I'll just keep watching the space and I'm yeah. hoping that some different new something else is going to make it better. But I'm not gonna, I'm not I think we're the positive, but our um, uh, it, there's just sort of, sort of mind shifts that are needed. So, in that system, there's localities, right. To the part of it and uh, either the Māori partnership boards, which are localised structures. And I'm a big fan of that. And early on in my career, I spent time working to get all the health services outside of Invercargill and Dunedin in the south into community ownership. So, Gore, Balclutha, Tapri, Omaru, it's got a reasonable size hospital. They're all in community ownership. And from so time, in, they're like rural hospitals in the community ownership, but they've come not to Fatu Water or they're not part of the British Bees. So they right. yeah, took them out of the DH. Yeah, yeah, they still get the contract, right? The service contract to run the public services, but they can run other services. And I have to say, it was very successful. There's a couple of places up north over the 30 years, but it just means the locals run smaller localised health services way better than a bureaucracy can. That worked. So localities can work, but what they need is clarity about decision-making mm. and authority. They need, they'll only work if two things happen. One is 
they're in charge of money. And two, they have autonomous decision-making capacity. Well, they're not completely, obviously, but they can actually make decisions to shift things around. And unfortunately, they don't have that. So the structures are kind of community committees of lots of people, goodwill people, sharing their understandings. But what matters is decisions about resources for people in need. And accountability. And accountability. And the accountability of the local sort is pretty effective. It's certainly much more effective than reporting it all the way up from Morgan to the head office in Wellington and then all the way back. There's been a lot of change in the last, I think, 30, 40 years or so in terms of managerialism within healthcare that I think a lot of clinicians have felt disempowered to make these like higher level decisions because actually it's that managers have come in to make those decisions and made it harder for us to actually make better policies in healthcare. And I think the trade-off there for clinicians is responsible for having been the Minister of Health mm. and the Minister of Finance. You need people who are willing to grapple with the fact that resources limited. And I always thought that clinicians who said we don't need any managers, it was fine if they said, and I'll take responsibility for the allocation of that resource. And I'll accept that I can, I can only get so much paediatrics. I can't have everything because it's also with paediatrics and it's also geriatrics. And actually, it's also a thing called primary care, which you can't see outside the hospital, but it's big. It's smaller. <laughs> it should be bigger. There's been this endless rhetoric about how system should be primary care driven even in legislation. Now, after 30 years of talking about it, I think primary care is a smaller proportion. So this is what I mean about institutions that can't change. Everyone knows that's what should happen, but it never does. So then you'd have to say, there's something wrong with this institution. It can't even do the thing it says that it knows it should do. Uh, and so you've got to pick, either make significant change to that institution, and certainly centralising isn't, or you go and create something different. And fortunately, in New Zealand, over time, we've built up these institutions that have only off providers, specific providers, as I talked about, finding work, more community oriented institutions, which can better deal with the, you know, what's loosely called the social determinants of health. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So bringing it back to social investment, how do you do that through you know, your business impact lab? How do you actually measure social investment? Because... When, when it comes to things like health and education, there are a lot of like intangible benefits to certain interventions in my practice as a doctor, is that you see, we do all these randomised control trials and studies on the outcomes are very discreet in terms of days off of the ventilator or age to death, things like that. They're very concrete outcomes. But when it comes to social investment, there becomes a lot of more wishy-washy, more intangible sort of outcomes. Like how do you ascribe a dollar value to those sorts of things? Because obviously that's the idea is that you put a dollar into this intervention and how much of a return do you get back from a social point of view? Like how do you measure those intangibles? Look, let's talk about the tangibles first because health has a, 
same tradition of doing things like measuring days on ventilators and working out that what often quite a quite subtle changes in clinical care that enable programs. Almost none of those techniques are applied in the social arena. It should be. Uh, Can we measure how many days our kids are at school inside a loop that's relevant to doing something about it? Well, it turns out we can't. Even that, which just seems ridiculous. What do you mean you can't? Me- what do you mean you can't measure it? Like uh, the point of measurement is some tangibles. Is can you do it in a way that means you can use it? So if the child's not at school for the last three days, hey, did you do you know? Can you tell which child it is? Do you know what days they're at school? And if you do, who's responsible for doing something about that, whether they're successful or not? And that's another whole measure. And what you find in our public services is this whole of that stuff just doesn't happen in the way that, say, a health professional might imagine it would. Or or they're just not set up to solve that problem. So a good example that you'll be familiar with from your training is a child turns up at the A&E from a poorly insulated state house with bronchial problems. Now, a few years ago, we tracked one of these and it was a disgrace, actually, despite the fact that it was a state house and a public hospital, and everyone knows the science around it. The actual delivery of care and service, I was solo done with a disabled child and another one who wasn't working poor housing, was shocking. And actually, at the end of it, she just said, I'm exhausted and bitter about how poorly this has all happened, and my kid's still singing. And my house is still the way it was. Now, that's a common experience of for New Zealanders who are disadvantaged. They just get poor service. And this tangible, easy, simple measurement of tangible intervention, that can help a lot with that. When it comes to intangibles, it's surprising actually how much kind of value attribution technology there is around. Um, we think of it as a stack. So you can go from avoided fiscal costs, which is pretty concrete. The New Zealand can calculate that of the benefits of an intervention through to subjective measures of being the fits with the living standards framework and the UNDG script framework. It's doable. The point, the point I think, what we've learned from doing hundreds of these is that the fact of thinking about what you're doing and its impact on customers it's hugely beneficial, even if the measures, even if you're not sure you should measure. We're pretty humble about it. We take a conservative view about what you can measure. Most people assume if you do a program that's 80 to 100% effective, or well, most literature tells you very few programs are more than 30% effective. Well, it makes a big difference. So you think about what you're doing. And if the data is patchy, which it usually often is, then data only gets better if you use it. And how do you think... You could approach the like impact labs way of measuring outcomes and measuring their process to how public service is done. Because I think that's what the current government and the current national government is talking about is about how, how can we use social investment in the provision of public services. 
can you disassociate, well, not disassociate, but like revamp the Ministry of Health? Is that possible? Uh, no. <laughs> like I can use an example. So if you take, say, let's take the welfare population. So there's 170,000 people in New Zealand, and we serve to some of your different business, who are on a, what generally a kind of disability benefit or sickness, disability and sickness. What actually happens in government is most of the money for supporting people on welfare goes on the unemployed. Now, the data is really clear around the world. Most of the unemployed actually do fairly well and get jobs, eventually just longer or shorter. And a bit of help can help them. But often, all you're doing is churning them while they wait. That's just what the data tells What do you mean by churning them? They go to courses, they aren't that focused, poorly delivered, poor pedagogy. And but everyone feels happy because it's a labour market intervention. When you look at but that, when you look at the long term for that whole population, the long term outlook and the opportunities for better incomes and the cost to everyone else from being on welfare, unemployment's only five percent of the long term impact of welfare. The other ninety five percent is these other people who, frankly, the bureaucracy just finds a bit too difficult. And so really doesn't do much with them. And so there's not much research on how you get disability, people with disabilities into work, or how you think about different sorts of the particular characteristics of people where they might be easier to get them into work than others. Everyone's in these kind of entitled, these categories designed to determine their entitlement for support, which is not the same thing as their aspirations to be in work, even if they're autistic. I guess there are two sides to that. For one thing is what I've been told or what I hear is that for a lot of people who are in various types of benefits, they feel this pressure to go get a job. And that the, often the jobs that are offered are relatively menial tasks, jobs that don't have, they not necessarily have got job security and don't have a lot of career progression. Like you go and work at a factory or whatever, and maybe you can work your way up to be a supervisor or manager, but maybe the pay is not, you know, a huge difference, right? Whereas if you have qualifications and you're an accountant, you can work your way up as an accounting or, you know, you can go be an MP. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's that side is that there's a pressure to go on jobs that aren't that necessarily good um, for the long term, often manual labour. And then there's the other part is that, I I agree that being in work that is it's somewhat meaningful is very good for you, right? Like I I don't like doing my job when it's like full-time 60 plus hours, but when I'm doing it part-time, like I really enjoy my job because it's meaningful, it's um, intellectually stimulating. I feel, it feels like I'm giving back. But I feel like overall the pressure on people on beneficiaries is to go into these jobs that are, I would say low quality jobs and I guess what I'm seeing is that there's this trend towards automation and artificial intelligence and I'm sure that automation has been something that's not just an issue that's been created in 2023 I'm sure automation has been an issue from decades ago yeah. and globalization and what they've seen in places in like the US for example where I think they close like the closing the mines or they're taking probably that as well as you know, moving uh, car manufacturing offshore to China, meant a whole you know large group of people, working class people, lost their jobs. And there are a lot of very well-meaning interventions to try and get them 
working again. Let's teach these car creators, car manufacturers how to code and that way they'll be able to contribute to the economy. And you're like, oh, will they, these people who are relatively working class have never really had an education and now suddenly going to be able to code? I think the studies show maybe 10% of them ended up being yeah. able to code. Just use that little example. <laughs> So how does the system find that 10% and then deliver it efficiently? And my own view is that the kind of models we're talking about, the kind of measurement investment models, help you do that because you can use the tools, the data tools to say to people with these kind of characteristics are more like it. So instead of churning all of our unemployed mm-hmm. population through coding classes, we can narrow that down to 20% and then we can connect that to actual workplaces because... A lot of this training is poor because it's not connected to places. So you can do that. And then you might say, actually, when we look into the disability population, we've actually found that 15% of them um, have the capacity to learn how to do coding because no one's ever asked because they're classified as disabled. Uh, but actually, when we look at the characteristics of the population, instead of the bureaucratic categories and statistical averages, then we're digging out potential that's there. One of my favourite examples about that is work we did on the highest risk 1% of children in New Zealand. So it's a 600 kids a year. And it turned out and they they have, you can imagine their projected life course. So life course projection is a really critical part of social investment idea. What's a person's story likely to be? And what we, that can we do something to alter that story? Because some of them are, as we know, distressingly predictable. But out of that 1% of kids who are experiencing violence, drug addiction, generally long-term welfare dependency in their household, two out of 10 of them get MCA level two. That was just my life. We have all these assumptions of hopelessness according to categories we drop people in. But what the data does is dig up the potential. And of course, it confirms some of that sense of they could have a tough life if nothing changes. But it also tells us in a lot of different ways, people are more resilient, more capable, more able to make some shift in their lives with a bit of support. And if their energy isn't sucked dry by chaotic, poorly delivered public services. So I want to ask you another question that's a bit more relevant to today's politics. In the previous national government, you were obviously the deputy minister for a lot of it, and you spent about nine years, and it was a coalition government with both with National Party, Act, United Futures, and Māori Party, as it was known at the time. And so I guess I want to ask you, because obviously done this work with Fano Water, what does treaty partnership mean to you as a person? I just find that it's not particularly, a, I just find it a not particularly useful category or language day to day. When we're in government, we meet pretty much every month for our years with the leaders. But I suppose you could, I mean, I would say it was an, certainly an expression of a man, actually, rather than treaty partnership. And it worked very well. Not because we agreed on everything, but because generally we found solutions to hard issues. Those the rules about Māori participation, participation and natural resource decisions, the whole CBM foreshore process, moving the treaty settlement process, 
what's fundamental to the relation to the relationship with Māori is that respect. And of course, that, but we've got to be careful. It's not exclusive. I mean, my own family, for instance, is uh, Pātāna, and yeah, we don't want a Pacific Island community. The Pacific Island community certainly accepts a kind of indigenous status of Māori, but it's not obvious why their challenges should be supported. And I think that's the issue. That those are the kind of issues we're dealing with at the moment. And New Zealand, fortunately, has a long history of dealing with these tough issues related to our history and to our constitutional structure. And we've proven to be able to get through really difficult times. I think we mentioned earlier the Springbok tulip, um, land marches, the early days of treaty settlements. We've proven that we can actually handle that fairly well. One reason is because we have to, because our indigenous populations are significantly greater portion of the population than there's in other similar countries, Australia and Canada. I think what the, there's part of the politics is about where the limits are. There is a Maori view that if you characterise, this is oversimplified, but we're not a dual sovereignty country and we're a democracy. And you can argue about whether we should be how we got there. But generally, like most New Zealanders, including most Māori, think that's probably not, that's a reasonable outcome. Uh, and so we've got to just keep working at this balance between the particular status of Māori on one hand, and on, the, on the other hand, fundamentally, we have one person, one vote in a democracy. And those things do clash, not because people are ill-willed, it's just because there are different aspirations and a lot of what's been successful about our kind of society is that we're able to resolve those clashes. So the reason why I want to ask this is because for me during the campaign trial, running for the Opportunities Party, and we had said that we were in the centre, that we'll work with whoever can form a government, which to, if you were listening to that with a sensible mind, it's okay, just whoever can form a government. But what I felt, especially with young people, I was like, oh, that means you're just going to work with National. And I said, well, we said whoever can form a government, National or Labour. And there's this idea that they, why would you work with, why would you even work with them and I'm going to work for Te Pata Māori instead or whatever, or Green Party or whoever. And I found that kind of reaction quite interesting because although I wasn't particularly politically conscious during the time when you were in government, felt like things were okay felt like things were stable. I mean, I was at school and then university, so I didn't feel like anything was, like, bad. And I feel like now maybe it's with social media and this information age that people are so much more aware of what's going on in the outside world and what's going on in our country that people are, like, a lot more, I don't know, just extreme in their views about things. And so I just want to understand a little bit more about what happened to that relationship between national and uh, Māori Party which was what it was called at the time, why does it feel like there's this shift in the Māori Party to be very like, oh, we're not going to work with National, but they did not so long ago. <laughs> I think the Māori Party's, certainly the political personnel, changed quite a bit. I don't know if they're, probably their support base, their support base has grown because they've won all these seats off, won all these seats off later. I think there's what's happened, and that's, a, that's actually a very good question. I would say part of it is just simply that Nationals being in opposition, and the challenge of opposition is always to how do you stay connected to what's current in government. I think another part of it would be the perception that under the previous government, 
with Māori issues as well as with others, there just wasn't the sort of sense of grittiness and trade-offs and pragmatism. That was a bit kind of high aspiration and people running loose and including with the money and you know, things generally a bit out of control. I think there's also a kind of, there's a significantly completed treaty settlement process has provided a kind of energy and motive, which I think is a good thing, a whole generation of a more bicultural and more confident way and so on. And so the New Zealand political system just has to move with that and should want to, actually. Because uh, he's, the, he's the irony of it all. I remember being involved in the 1990s with the very early stages of enabling in government Maori providers, Maori health providers. Now, the health system was pretty dodgy about that. They were, you know, who are these people? What are they going to do? How would they know what to do? Etc. Now, of course, it's commonly accepted. I think the point there is what tends to happen under centre-right governments is because they're fundamentally less about government getting bigger and more about what goes on in families and communities. Actually, Maori institutions tend to do better and get embedded get more embedded. A bit of an exception because of COVID. So there's a lot of money with COVID. And so a lot of Maori organisations under that emergency pressure got the uh, cash, got cash in the smart ones, put some of them in their bank. So they're stronger. And that's good. But Labor's, the previous government's very strong focus on the institutions of government meant that fundamentally in the end, government agencies for all the sheen of biculturalism weren't actually willing to see control. And even in the health reforms, it didn't actually happen. Looking ahead, if the current government, current coalition government, follows its principles, then it will follow a process of localism, devolution. And the reality is, in a lot of our communities, the most organised, legitimate community institution, the kind of place is accepted. They've got a widening range of activity, generally growing economic basis. And I think that's going, that's going to be a feature. Oh, I don't know, and, um, my former colleagues take advantage of that. I think that's how it will turn out. Right now you've got this discussion about names of government departments. Well, it's a pretty simple solution to put both names together. No one knows the Māori name of NSD. You notice that? But everyone knows Whataora. The people will decide. And people have decided in recent years they're going to have more tobacco and feel more confident and happy about it. And in a sense, it doesn't matter what the government decides. But the sensible solution, put both names up, let the people let the people run. It would be a shame if we got derailed into a kind of cultural war argument around symbolism. I mean, it has to be dealt with because the symbolism matters to people, but it can actually be solved in practice. Because it feels like a lot more, like this election has been much more of a culture war than elections got by. And it's, from talking to you and doing my background research, it seems like there were there's quite a bit of progress in that nine years of government in terms of, you know, Māori relations between National Party and in the eyes of Māori. And then now it feels like it's a huge step backwards in terms of, like, relations with Māori. We're seeing a lot in the media of people wanting to protest and all that and being unhappy with the new national government. And I'm not going to put all the blame at the feet of National because they've got some pretty considerable large coalition partners who I'm sure had a lot of influence in that coalition agreement. What can National do to build some of those bridges back? What would be your advice to the new government about building those bridges again? Oh, look, I'm talking about in a very practical sense. 
that one would be restore or update the process of emulators. It was a, just a construct, was the most constructive, gritty, accountable process. So monthly, in the monthly meeting that you had. And, and it, Did they not do that anymore? Guess what? It was one hour long. Okay. And it was, because it was regular and short, it was highly accountable, which is yeah, quite different from the kind of talk fest um, approach that's, I think, been a bit over-cultivated in recent years. Well, we'll talk about equity and we'll talk about the treaty. But actually, how do you deliberate? That kids are getting immunised. <laughs> For all the talk, immunisation rates, which used to be mid nineties and now modern immunisation rates are about as long as they've been for a long time. Why don't we just fix? Why don't we fix a few things? So we get the the, the manner enhancing decision process, but realistic about the the things that at, at, at our kids. Maori kids' literacy is as bad as it's ever been. Schools are all treated compliant. Ministry of Education spends a lot of time on it, and there's some merit in that. But actually, the kids have to be able to read. We're just today poor English, and they're not. So what are we doing about it? And I think looking at my advice would be to, one is get that sort of more formalised relationship in place so that whatever's going on in the media will always play up the conflict as they always do. Like I remember going to the Waitangi, we used to meet with the EU leaders group at Waitangi. Because we were a centre-right government, the media, even though they could see all the people coming out of the meeting, which was large meetings with EU chairs forum, EU leaders group and EU chairs forum, hundreds of people, they just never computed that the key government was meeting with the leadership of Māori at Waitangi. What they did compute was the conflict on the Marae. So they just needed to report that. It was like it didn't exist. It was an incredible experience to, to see. They didn't even ask you, what are you doing in that room with all those people? Well, what we're doing is hammering through details of how to deal with water policy. That's what we're doing. So I'd, I'd say get, get that mana and that, that sort of mana enhancing constitutionally appropriate discussion, primarily with EU. And there's courses other groups have an interest, but that's still the primary constitutional structure of Māori. And get on the ground practical about issues that really matter to Māori families, health, housing, education, jobs. And this, we can do a hell of a lot better at those just by solving practical daily problems. Sounds very sensible. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that in your, was it five, six years since you've left Parliament and you're more on the ground working with these NGOs and charities who impact Lab and your other ventures, do you think that any of your views have changed at all? I've become more convinced that government agencies are incapable of dealing with the most disadvantaged New Zealanders in a respectful, effective way. They do in some circumstances if you fit their criteria. So if you're a patient in their hospital, of course you're getting um, good professional care, although I was a bit surprised like many New Zealanders to find out that apparently the care has been racially rationed. We had hoped that wasn't the case. So in that, as a pupil, as a patient, of course you're getting care and attention. But if you've got revolving doors of failure and there's now plenty of accumulated evidence and it appears to be getting worse, then... I now believe that locus for significant change around families and communities is outside of government. Like asking government agencies to collaborate is now a waste of time. I've made the effort myself. So you're never returning to Parliament? <laughs> well, I've made the intensive effort myself. <laughs> well, thinking a charity came across recently dealing with pregnant homeless women, a lot of whom have been pushed out of gangs, and they are in a car 
طبعا ليف باي سلبين كار because everyone knows it's not a good idea it's the worst kind of start all these people talking about the first thousand days actually there's a thousand women out there now who's about to start the first thousand days in the worst conditions that this country can give them what are you doing about that because I don't believe what you say about the first time become more skeptical about the rhetoric first thousand days is conferences and research papers and all that it's all consensual well that's fine it's a great concept someone had to develop it And you need some research. But in this case, the charity has public agencies referring these women to the charity, but the public agencies won't pay anything. Oh, my God. Right? So they go, here's a really bad case. So you deal with it. Because it's actually, the government is not the last stop. It's the charities. They get the hard cases that can't go anywhere else, apart from prisons and mental health workers. Prison, police sales, mental health. So almost interchangeable sometimes. Yeah, and actually I'm in a project dealing with the people who cycle between them, which is positive. From an impact point of view, in that specific cycle of mental health and prisons, yeah. what have you found is, I don't know if you've looked for it, but what have you found is the place where you can get the best you know, bang for your buck? It's sort of an approach around self-direction. So remember, these are people who, because they're so institutionalised, they tell you themselves, they don't get to decide what to eat, what to learn, what time to get up, what time to go to bed. So when they spat out into the real world, they're basically the limited decision-making capacity. And all we try to do is, the program does, enable them to make some decisions. Is this while they're still in prison? You know, while they're out in the community. They're not hopeless. When they're enabled to make some decisions, they start making some good, in some cases, deeply, deeply healing, rebuilding of relationships and so on when there's a bit of capacity and a bit of cash to decide that. Now, that's a, in this case, a privately funded program with proper sponsorship, proper public sponsorship and oversight. The point of all that is I've just become more convinced that government agencies can't, not only can't deal with, not, not only can't deal with the complexity, but actually often just don't want to. I find it interesting, this topic about public services being provided by Ministry of Health or whatever versus, say, like NGOs who have contracted to do the work, and it's separate but similar, is the idea of, like, infantilization of the government. Have we seen, do, do you think that we've had, like, infantilization of the government where there's this dependence on contracting out to consultants and things like that. And we see the governments around the world having to consult to the big four to basically oh, govern, yeah, yeah. right? And what are, what are your opinions on that? Of course, the, the, the problem there is you can end up with agencies who are both poor at operational delivery. Does the Ministry of Education know how to run family support programs in low-income communities? No. Does it do it? Yes. Why? Why would it not? So both poor operational delivery, but also poor at the but they have to do it themselves, which is which I, I think of as uh, they have to be the funder, they have to make the rules. That's their job. They have an obligation to understand coverage. Right? By that, how much of the population are they richer? Because often you find we're doing sensible stuff reasonably well. We just don't get to all the people, and sometimes the simplest positive gain. It's just, you know, if the greater world is 500 complex families and we're only servicing 200, whose job is it to find out 300? We think the state would do that, okay? But they're not very good at it. So they'd be better to focus on going, we're going to make sure everyone's getting care and we're going to getting the support they need and we're going to make sure that it actually gets delivered to a good standard. 
It happens that, <laughs> that that's all pretty patchy. And when they do it themselves, the standards um, are patchy. Right? So doing it themselves is no guarantee of doing it better than someone else. I find that and, so, and some of the things I do are just really dumb. I'll just give you an example. <laughs> I came across this homeless guy at the Auckland City Mission. I said, why can't we get the emergency benefits? And he said, I've been in this prison for seven years. When I come out, I had no phone, no licence, no passport, no utility bill. So I'm nobody. That's why I'm homeless. I can't get the emergency benefit. And you think, okay, that's pretty dumb. Because we know this guy enough to keep him locked up for 17 years. He must have some identity. He could possibly have got some of that for him. Like maybe before he was... Because for the last 10 years, we knew exactly what day he was leaving. Okay. Well, this is what I mean about these institutions, this squatter. That they just can't deal with this stuff. And then I wonder if it's like they've been so infantilised because they're so dependent on consultants that they don't have any of that institutional knowledge to like yeah. keep with. In that sense, I agree with you. They shouldn't need consultants to help them think about institutional issues, which is generally what they're getting the consultants in. What sort of structure should Futter have? I was reading this book and it's really interesting. It's called The Shock Doctrine. And if you heard of it by this um, writer, Naomi Klein, and she was saying that in some cases in America, because she's Swiss Canadian, but reports a lot in America, is that there were some cases where the government had been so infantilised by consulting groups that they actually had to outsource the contracting of consultants to a consultant <laughs> group. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Look, it's like in your job, you have to be clear what it is you do because you're a specialist, right? You've got a specialist focus and you don't let anyone just wander in and you know what you're doing. And all these government agencies are trying to be too many things. And there's bits they have to be able, they have to, be able to do, which is funding, rulemaking, essentially ensuring, providing the support, the insurance to the whole population. And they shouldn't have to ask consultants about how to do that. Now, that, look, in some places in the public service, that's pretty good. In other places, it's pretty bad. But in health, why is the administrative system giving experienced GPs detailed instructions about how to run their clinical and business operations when they can't sort out how to actually sustain primary care funding properly? The GP can't fix the primary care funding. So that's why I think they should keep their nose out of the, business, the delivery business until at least they've sorted out their own business. Can they change the funding system to actually shift the focus to property gear? Answer so far is no. The hospitals suck up even more of the money than they used to. So why shouldn't we take any notice? Why shouldn't the GP or the, the practice nurse or the, the social worker take any notice of what they say about how to do their business at the front line? Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken up a lot of your time, and so we have enough time for just one last question, which was, as head chef of the English household, what is your favourite dish to cook? I've been exploring recently a Kijari recipe book, mm -hmm. and there's a really nice one that's got uh, some beef, and I don't know what it's called. It's some of the vegetables sort of beef and, uh, uh, and cauliflower plant. And oh, I do like that. A magic sauce. And it's easy to do and it, it tastes really nice. What's the name of the recipe book? It's just keto or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was, it, it's, I can understand it and follow it. So it's not overly complex. What do you cook the other days of the week? Are you a meat and two veg kind of guy? Oh, occasional. No, I've been doing less of that, more 
branching out at the York Free Time. Branching in, yeah. Well, we have a little thank you gift for you spending that time with us this afternoon. So thank you. Thank you very much. Feel free to open it now. <laughs> I can yes, <laughs> and I will save the audience that embarrassment. <laughs> I just thought, just in case you were wanting to reminisce about the good old days, <laughs> it's nice to be regularly reminded of my importance. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.